How are you this morning? Thank you guys. Thanks for leading us. That was good. I was rem- I was reminded this week uh, again of uh, the emptiness of religion and how it fails utterly fails to uh, to meet the the soul needs of people. There was a tragic death uh, in our area, and a friend of mine who um, is uh, part of a, a different religion, different belief system, um, was called upon to minister at this scene, and and uh, here's people that are grieving, people that are. Um, upset, obviously, and in uh, his particular um, tradition, you have to do a, a rock ceremony uh, something in this, and, uh, and the people at the scene didn't understand what he's doing, and, um, and here's grieving people, and there's a disconnect between the the hurts and the needs of the people and my religious tradition that I have to follow through, you know. And it just reminded me fresh and new of how, you know, I, I tell you, we're all guilty. Uh, I'm guilty of doing my rock ceremonies and failing to see the needs of the people around me, right? That's where religion falls apart. Religion says, no, we, I have to fill in these blanks. And, uh, no, we actually have to do communion this way. It has to be done. We have to say this and do this. And that, that. Right? We, I mean, it's, we're all guilty of it. I'm not uh, pointing a finger at any particular religious group. Just religion seems to sneak in there. And when it does, we just fail to minister to the person. It's, I'm reminded again of the, of the essential need for relationship. And this morning, I was sitting here praying early this morning, praying for us today, and was reminded at how, you know, we spent the first 17 years of our churches, of our life as a church, setting up and tearing down. We had broken down vans, and for a while we hauled stuff in that, and then for a while we hauled stuff in a trailer, and we've gone through all of it, right? And you know what? I don't complain, never did complain about it. We'd talk to people, and they would say, oh, that's so hard. That really was not our experience as a church. Um, Maybe... Maybe I forget painful stuff. You block it out, but I don't. I don't remember it being painful. I remember it being a lot of fun, actually, and and we enjoyed doing that together. And then I was thinking, you know, here we are. God's blessed us with this, you know, wonderful place. But I got to admit, there's Sundays where I miss setting up, and I miss the camaraderie of of uh, throwing chairs down and setting them back up again. And I just miss that. I don't know. Maybe that's the guy in me. I like to do stuff, you know. But then, then the Lord reminded me, you know what? Now we have the freedom. So instead of having to pack up boxes and worry about where the, where the chairs are going, now we actually have the freedom to focus on one another, focus on relationship. And so I just, I'd encourage you, like I love it on Sundays that there almost always there's people here praying and talking and chit-chatting and that's a beautiful thing you know no need to rush out after service because we don't have to pack up and i'd encourage you even to come early and do it you know there's people praying and people it's great that's 
we have the luxury now of being able to focus on one another, on relationships, right? It's, that's what it's about, right? It's not about our rock ceremony. It's about, it's about what God's doing in the hearts of one another, right? And uh, partnering with them there. And, and then that being said, you know, we're coming into, I know summertime is kind of crazy and all, and ups and, you know, we're busy and we're in and out, but we're coming into that season quickly where kids are in school and got the schedule, routine. I would encourage you strongly to make being a part of a, of a life group a part of your schedule. It's absolutely important and vital to your spiritual growth and your health as a person and for your family. And I know that it takes a commitment. I know it. I know that I know it takes effort, right, to block off a day or block off a time. It, it, it does. It takes effort. It takes work. Um, not going to lie. It's not easy. But you know what? It's worth the effort. It's worth the commitment to lock in and, and become a part of it. So I really just have one point this morning, and, uh, and this is really what it is, is uh, the secret of transformation is discipleship, and, and every one of us needs to be one, and we need to make one. That's, that's the point. So now you can go home. You don't even have to put up with the rest of this. I gave it away to you. Um, I, I want to just begin with a history lesson. And for those of you detailed people, this is going to really frustrate you because I admit it's a high-level, bird's-eye view of biblical redemptive history, okay? So obviously there will be a lot of blanks that I'm skipping to give this history lesson, but I want you to see something. I want you to see a pattern. But really, that's what it is. You know, sometimes you have to step back a little bit in order to see the patterns in, in things. And here's, see this pattern in history. God calls Abraham to follow him, right? And Abraham does. Abraham's a faithful guy. Abraham raises up his son Isaac to also follow God. And in fact, God is called the fear of Isaac in the Bible. Isaac has Jacob. Now, Jacob, for his failures, um, still is regarded as a man of faith. Jacob raises up his son Joseph. Joseph is a faithful man, an exemplary man. Who does Joseph train? Nobody. And for the next 400 years, God's people rotted as slaves in Egypt. And then God steps in, and God raises up Moses. And Moses comes, literally, handpicked by God. And God uses Moses to set the people free out of Egypt. Moses trains up Joshua. Joshua leads the people into the promised land. They conquer it. They finally gain the promises that God gave to them. Who does Joshua raise up? Nobody. And for the next 400 years, you're starting to see the pattern, 400 years, Israel went through what we call the period of the judges. It's like the dark ages in Israel's history. Bad times. And then God steps in. And he raises up a man named David to be the king, to be the man after God's own heart. And David brings the people to God. And David raises up Solomon. And under Solomon, Israel reaches its zenith, its glory days. Who does Solomon raise up? Nobody. 
And for the next approximately 400 years, they go from one bad king to the other, civil war, split, moral degradation, worse and worse and worse and worse, until eventually the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom of Judah, wiped them off the face of the earth. Bad times. And then God steps in, raises up Ezra the priest, Nehemiah the builder, a woman like Esther the queen. Israel experiences a brief revival. It's good. Who do they raise up? Nobody. And for the next 400 years, you following the pattern? (laughs) It's amazing. 400 years, we go through what we call the silent years, the intertestamental period between the Old Testament, the New Testament. God literally goes mute for 400 years. And the people of Israel are conquered and they're tossed back and forth and they're caught between different geopolitical struggles going on in the the, there and then 400 years later of that 400 years in a little outside the sleepy town of Bethlehem on Christmas night a virgin gives birth to a son God once again intervenes God becomes a man and they called him Jesus And Jesus raised up 12 disciples. And one of them betrayed him. But the other 11, the other 11 went on to make other disciples who made other disciples who made other disciples. And for the first 100 years of the church's existence, it exploded in growth. And literally in less than 50 years after Jesus walked this planet, what what didn't exist before had completely revolutionized the Roman Empire, rocked the known world of its time within 50 short years. Why? One disciple after another disciple after another. Do you catch the pattern through history? When we fail to make disciples, we destine ourselves for certain trouble. The lesson is that discipleship has the power to transform the world. Because it's so important and because it's so vital... Guess what? We experience all kinds of resistance in doing it, don't we? Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that, though, that that works with anything of value? Anything that's really important is hard. We would all say that prayer is absolutely essential to our lives, and yet every one of us would probably say, what a struggle it is to pray. But the struggle doesn't mean that prayer is not valuable. The struggle actually indicates the value of prayer, doesn't it? And discipleship is really hard. It's, it's a whole lot easier to not make disciples. It really is. But that's exactly the reason why we should. There's, there's resistance at it because the enemy knows there's power in it. So we've got this medical doctor named Luke. And he wrote two books that got included in the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and then the sequel called the Book of Acts. And while the number of disciples in the early church is absolutely exploding and multiplying like crazy, Luke focuses on a very specific and special relationship that developed between a couple of men. And one of them became pretty famous. You've probably heard about the Apostle Paul. 
But have you heard about Joseph? Do you know that we would not have the Apostle Paul if it was not for Joseph? I'd like to just simply tell you a story this morning, and that's my hope, is just to tell you the story of the relationship between Joseph and Paul and a couple of others. And I'm intentionally, I, what I did was I put all the different scripture references that I'm using this morning, I put them actually on your outline so that I encourage you, go home, you know, and look them up at your own leisure and read through them carefully. And as you do, you'll, I, I hope you'll, you know, see the, the story that uh, I'm trying to weave for us this morning, okay? But um, I, I confess we're not going to look all those up. I'm just going to actually ask you to turn to Acts chapter 9, because I will read from Acts chapter 9. I do like it when we read from the Bible, but we'll get there in a minute. So let me just begin at the end. Here's the story. The Apostle Paul, I want you to imagine he's an, he's an older man. He's got scars on his back. He's got a broken nose. He was stoned and left for dead twice, shipwrecked twice. The man's got scars of a very difficult life on his body. He's nearing the very end. He knows that it's his end. He knows it. He can feel it. He can sense it. He can just, he knows he's getting close. And Paul is writing a letter to his disciple, a pastor by the name of Timothy, and he's in the city of Ephesus. Timothy's the pastor in Ephesus. And Paul writes these words. And Paul, at this point, would have been chained, or at least under house arrest he was, to a Roman guard. And he says to Timothy, I have fought the good fight, Timothy. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. I mean, you hear the strength in this man's words. It's a fitting epitaph on a most remarkable life that was lived full throttle for the glory of Jesus Christ. Paul got beheaded in the spring of AD 68, just before Emperor Nero died. It's one of the last things Nero did was kill Paul. And then Nero checked out. But these were some of his very last words. I fought the fight. I've kept the faith. I finished the race, Timothy. I didn't choke out. I went all the way through. Now, we know the Apostle Paul as being the guy that wrote almost two-thirds of the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We know him as the guy that traveled around and started numerous churches throughout the Roman Empire, right? You know that. We know Paul. I mean, Paul's like quoted probably as much as Jesus is quoted. I mean, obviously he's not Jesus, but we revere Paul pretty highly, do we not? Paul is right up there. But do you know that the Apostle Paul was a murderer? Do you know that he began his life not as the Apostle Paul? He did not begin his life as a great man of God. The Apostle Paul, in fact, was a religious terrorist when he began. He was the the modern day, the ancient equivalent of modern day ISIS. He killed people in the name of God. He wasn't crazy. He was committed to his cause. He, he believed that Christianity was a blight 
on the planet and that it needed to be stamped out. He killed untold women, men, children in his efforts to destroy Christianity. So how does a cold-blooded terrorist become the Apostle Paul? The answer, discipleship. When uh, telling us the story of Paul's remarkable transformation, Dr. Luke first introduces us to an unassuming man, a good man, a faithful man, a generous man, an unassuming man. He's a guy named Joseph. In Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37, we meet Joseph. He's a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field, that he owned, and he brought the money, and he put it at the disciples, at the apostles' feet. Two things you learn about Barnabas, Joseph, in this one verse. First, you learn that the apostles, guys like Peter, James, and John, right? The apostles, the big guys, they gave Joseph a nickname. They nicknamed him Barnabas because he was so encouraging. You're, you're just such an encouraging guy, we're going to call you encourager. Boy, it reminds me, it makes me wonder if you guys were to give me a nickname, what would it be, right? What is it about my life that stands out that you would name me for? I hope it's good. Barnabas, Joseph was so encouraging that the, the apostles, his early friends go, man, you are son of encouragement, you. What a great nickname to have. Second thing we learn about Barnabas is this. He's generous. He sold a plot of land, and he gave the money to the apostles for the work of ministry, probably to take care of the poor, probably. And that's it. That's Luke's introduction of Joseph. In Acts chapter 7, we're going to move on through the book of Acts a little bit. Acts chapter 7, 57 to 8, 1, Luke tells us about the first Christian martyr, a man named Stephen. Now, just parentheses real quick. The Christian definition of martyr is very different from the Islamic definition of martyr. In Islam, a martyr is someone who kills themselves in the process of killing others. In Christianity, a martyr is someone who gets killed by others because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Very different definitions of martyr. Let's not confuse them. Okay? So... In Acts chapter 7, we read about Stephen. The first Christian martyr was a church deacon, Aaron, <coughs> named uh, Stephen. And he's there, he's there dying, and as Stephen dies, who is there giving approval to Stephen's death? We're told a young man named Saul. So get this. Remember Luke's writing the story, right? I'm trying to weave the story. Luke introduces you to Joseph, and then another chapter or so later, he introduces you to this guy named Saul. And Saul, the first time you see Saul, he's holding coats at an execution, and he's happy about it. That tells you something about him, right? And then the very next verse, after Stephen dies, is killed for his faith in Jesus, we read that this man Saul goes on a murderous rampage. Acts chapter 8, verse 3, Saul began to destroy the church, destroy it, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them into prison. 
He continued to terrorize those innocent Christians in the name of God until we come to Acts chapter 9. And this is where I'd like to read. Something happens in Saul's life. Meanwhile, I'm in verse 1, and I'm going to read a big chunk of it, so stick with me. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Well, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he said. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. You see what God's, God's playing matchmaker gives Saul a vision of Ananias, gives Ananias a vision of Saul, right? Verse 13, uh, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest guys like me who call on your name. <laughs> Obviously, he's concerned. I would be too if I was Ananias, right? But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Great. So not only do you want me to meet Saul, you want me to tell him he's going to suffer. <laughs> Thanks, Lord. Then Ananias went to the house and he entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Please make note that Saul was converted on the road and he was filled with the Holy Spirit at the laying on of hands in verse 17 later. Just please make note of that process. Verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished, and they asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. 
But his followers took him by night, lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Now he came to Jerusalem, and he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. I can only imagine, you know, if Osama bin Laden were still alive, let's pretend Osama had come to Christ and walked through the front doors on a Sunday morning. I'm guessing we would all look at him a little suspiciously, right? And that's kind of what's going on. I mean, you don't, this guy Saul, right? So they obviously are afraid of him. He doesn't really get the welcome mat rolled out, right? They don't believe that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas, come on, but Barnabas, Joseph, took him and brought him to the apostles. And he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews. Those were the, the Grecian, the Greek Jews. But they tried to kill him. And when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him back to Tarsus. So you can break this chapter into three sections, just real quick. If you got your pencil, verses 1 to 10, you could say that's Saul's conversion. And then, or verses 1 to 9, rather. And then verses 10 to 19 would tell us about Saul's commission in the ministry. So we have his conversion, and then his commission, and then verses 20 to 30 give us Saul's initiation in the ministry, which was rough, to say the least. They tried to kill him twice. That's quite an initiation. And who do we meet? Joseph. Joseph. Who's being a Barnabas. And he sees this new Christian, the new guy Saul, that nobody trusts. Everybody thinks he's a killer. Nobody wants to be nice to him. Barnabas comes alongside of Saul. And he stands up for him, and he speaks up for him. So Saul spends a short period of time in Jerusalem. And because there were people who wanted to kill him there, Saul took off, and he went back to his hometown of Tarsus. Meanwhile, the church is growing, and it's expanding, and more and more great stuff is happening. And in one town in particular, the church is really exploding, the town of Antioch. It's not Jerusalem. It's away from Jerusalem. town of Antioch, mostly a Greek town. That's the surprising thing. You understand, right? It's a miracle that you and I are even here. You get that the very first Christians were Jewish. They never in their wildest imaginations thought that dirty Gentiles like you and me would want to follow Jesus. You get that, right? And same thing. It's going on right there. Jerusalem, they're doing awesome. And Gentiles like us start coming to Jesus in the city of Antioch. And the apostles are like, what's up with that? So who do the apostles send? They say, we've got to send a guy up there and check this out. Who do they send? Joseph. Let's get your best encourager. Let's get him up there, see what's going on, check things out, encourage the new believers. And that's what they do. So they send Barnabas up there. And Barnabas, sure enough, finds out that the work in Antioch is exploding like gangbusters, and he needs help. Who does Barnabas call for help? In Acts chapter 11, verse 25, Barnabas goes to Tarsus to find Saul and bring him back to Antioch to help him work in the ministry there. 
And for a whole year, we're told, Barnabas and Saul worked together. Barnabas would have been the leader. Saul would have been the understudy. And they taught and they directed and they led and they pastored the church in Antioch. And after this whole year of ministry, in Acts chapter 11, verse 30, Barnabas takes Saul on their first road trip together. They go from Antioch down to Jerusalem. Now stop right there for a second and put some parentheses in the story. If you want to get more of the backstory of what's happening there, you have to leave the book of Acts and go over to the book of Galatians. And in the book of Galatians, chapters 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Galatian Christians, and Paul gives them some of the story of what happened. And when you read that, you discover that actually 14 years had passed from the first time that Saul was in Jerusalem to the second time that Saul was in Jerusalem. 14 years. That means this. Saul went from Jerusalem to Tarsus, and he's hanging out there for 14 years. Cool stuff was happening in Antioch. Barnabas goes up to Antioch to check it out. And 14 years later, Barnabas goes, you know, Saul, I wonder what he's up to these days. And understand, this is before Facebook. It's not like he could check out. So Barnabas, actually on a long shot, leaves Antioch, goes to Tarsus looking for Saul, finds him, brings him back to Antioch. Do you see the the heart of uh, the disciple maker? Barnabas is in the middle of this exciting thing, and he can't keep it to himself. And he's led, I believe, by God in his own encouraging gift as well to say, I got to get Saul in on this. He, he could really benefit from this. And he goes and gets him and he brings him to Antioch and they work together. And then they leave Antioch, they go to Jerusalem. And uh, we read that after their time, and we read in Acts chapter 12, verse 25, after they are in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Saul take off and go back to Antioch with a young guy by the name of Mark. Mark's an important figure. Hang on there for a second. In Acts chapter 13, we're cruising through Acts. We read that Saul is now listed among the leaders of the Antioch church. What? Saul, the murderer. Now, he's one of the leaders of the church. Yup. How could that be? Discipleship. Barnabas. Barnabas took this murderer. And after a few years, what do you know? He's leading the church. Wow. Only God could make that kind of change in a person's life, right? And during a prayer meeting, the Holy Spirit tells them to set aside Barnabas and Saul for another mission. And starting in Acts chapter 13... For the rest of the book of Acts, we see the amazing transformation of this former terrorist. What a joy it must have brought to Joseph's heart, to Barnabas' heart, to see his disciple Saul transform into the man that you and I know as the Apostle Paul. It wasn't all easy. You don't work with a tough guy like Saul and not hit a few bumps in the road. Acts chapter 15, verse 36 to 41, we read about an argument that Saul had with his mentor Barnabas. 
At this point, Saul had taken on the Greek name Paul in order to relate to his audience. And Barnabas wanted to take Mark with him on their journey. But you see, Barnabas, or Saul, Mark, rather, Mark had abandoned them earlier. Mark was kind of known for waffling. He, he wasn't, you know, last week we talked about, you know, faithful, available, right? Mark was kind of not, necess- not always faithful. He sort of wasn't real dependable always. And Saul was like, no way. I'm not, we're not taking Mark with us. And Barnabas said, well, yeah, I think, we could t- I think we could really help Mark. You see the heart of Barnabas? Barnabas is like, now he's got Saul, his disciple. Saul's cooking, cooking with gas. Saul's leading in the church. He's doing great stuff. Barnabas is thinking the next guy, right? That's what you do. Barnabas is all set to invest in Mark. Saul is not willing to give Mark the same benefit that Barnabas had given to him. You catch that? I mean, I'd like to go, whack, whack, what are you thinking, Saul? Dude, he gave you a chance when nobody else did, and now you get the chance to do it again, and you don't do that? Bonehead, bonehead, bonehead. But anyway, Saul and Barnabas have a big argument, and it's big. And they split ways. Barnabas takes Mark and goes with him on a missionary journey. Saul takes his friend Silas, and they go on a missionary journey. And apparently, and we don't know if Paul and, Bar- if Paul and Barnabas ever saw one another again after that. The Bible doesn't tell us. In fact, uh, it's quite possible that they never saw each other after that. And uh, we do know in church history that church history tells us that Barnabas ended up back in his hometown of Cyprus. And uh, he ministered there for a number of years. And in 61 AD, he was attacked by a group of Jewish zealots who dragged him through the streets and stoned him to death. And we're told in the same historical account that John Mark was with him at the time, that, that Mark had stayed with Barnabas all those years. And that Mark actually buried the body of Barnabas and um, said goodbye. The book of Acts goes on to tell us about the Apostle Paul's extraordinary life and ministry. It's almost like Barnabas just sort of disappears. And then Paul rises up into the limelight. And Paul goes on. And what you might not know is that Mark didn't turn out half bad either. He went on to Rome where he met the Apostle Peter. He learned some more about the extraordinary life of Jesus. And Mark wrote the first gospel, the Gospel of Mark. And church history also records that Mark went on to become the Bishop of Alexandria in Egypt. And he also was martyred for his faith eventually. So Mark didn't turn out half bad. My point is this. Both Paul and Mark owe a great debt to Joseph, the encourager, the man who discipled them in the ways of Jesus. You know, Joseph never wrote a book of the Bible. We don't have any book of Barnabas. And to our, our, there's no biblical record of Barnabas ever doing a miracle. And yet, his contribution to church history, his contribution to your life and mine is absolutely priceless, is it not? If it weren't for Barnabas, 
we wouldn't have the Apostle Paul, and we wouldn't have the Gospel of Mark. I mean, it stands to reason. It was Barnabas's influence in those two men's life that made them the men that they were. The question you might be asking is, well, wait a second, time, time, okay, so if Paul got discipled by Barnabas, who did Paul disciple? And the answer is yes, Paul discipled guys. He might have blown it with Mark, but he didn't continue to blow it. We know that there's a young preacher named Apollos who was influenced by Paul. We know a man by the name of Rufus was influenced by Paul. We know that a Greek couple named Priscilla and Aquila also were heavily influenced by the Apostle Paul. And those just to name a few people who called Paul their spiritual father. But probably the one person that stands out as the most famous of Paul's disciples was a young pastor in the city of Ephesus named Timothy. Timothy came from a racially mixed home. His mom was a Jew and his dad was a Greek, which means that Timothy also came from a spiritually confused home. His mom followed God and his father was a pagan. And in the same way that Barnabas gave Paul the chance to lead the church in Antioch, Paul gave Timothy the chance to lead the church in the city of Ephesus. And we've got two letters that Paul sent to Timothy in our New Testament. They're called 1 and 2 Timothy. And you read these brief letters, and you begin to get a glimpse of the relationship that Paul had with this young guy, Timothy. 2 Timothy 1.13, Paul says, What you have heard from me, Timothy, keep that as the pattern of sound teaching. 2 Timothy 2, verse 1, You then, my son, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul saw Timothy as a son. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, Timothy, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, now you teach those to reliable men who will teach others. You see the discipler? I discipled you, you disciple them so that they can disciple others. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, But as for you, Timothy... Continue in what you've learned and you've become convinced of. Why? Because you know those from whom you learned it. Me, Timothy. You heard it from, this is me, Timothy, your spiritual dad talking. So hang on to that because you know where it came from. Right, Timothy? Right? You hear him? Paul wrote this letter just before he was beheaded by Nero. And do you catch the heart of the disciple maker in his words? Timothy. Remember what I taught you, Timothy. Timothy, don't give up. Hang in there, buddy. Hang in there. Remember, don't forget, Timothy. You, you remember me. I'm the one that I gave that to you, Timothy, right? So drawn from the encouragement that he had received from Barnabas, Paul passed it along to Timothy. And here in his final moment, Paul recalls a painful event from his past. And I just, I didn't know where else to stick it, so I thought I'd stick it here. You got to keep in mind the chronology. It's been almost 25 years since the time that Paul parted ways with Barnabas over John Mark, right? Almost 25 years have passed. And now Paul knows that his end is near. And some of his very last words, this is some of the very last stuff that Paul wrote. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. 
Paul suddenly, rem he remembers. I don't think suddenly, that was wrong. I think it's been on Paul's mind for a long time. He goes, um, Timothy, it'd be great if you could get here as soon as you can. And when you do, um, could you get Mark? Could you get Mark and, and bring him with you? Because um, he's helpful to me and my ministry. You hear that? 25 years earlier, Paul didn't want anything to do with Mark. He was useless. Wasn't very helpful. You're a deserter. You're faithless. You're a snot-nosed kid. Get out of my way, right? Now, 25 years later, he's almost about to die. And uh, could you bring Mark? Because um, he's helpful. It's my belief that Paul came full circle with those words and realizing his mistake that he had made with Mark, that that was Paul uh, repenting and turning and apologizing. That was his apology for what had happened all those years before. Paul was making it right. And, uh, you know, it's great. As long as we're on this side of the grave, there's time to change, right? So Paul, he might have come close to the end, but he came back around. So how does a religious terrorist become the Apostle Paul? And how does a defector, a faithless, waffling guy like Mark, become a gospel writer? And, and how does a fearful kid from a broken home become Pastor Timothy? Discipleship. Discipleship is the secret of transformation. It's the investment of one life into another. That's what it is. Three lessons we learn from Barnabas, who teaches us from the trenches of discipleship. And then, I'm, then I'll wrap it up. I know this has been long. Hopefully it's been informative. I know it's a different, anyway, different from my usual style. <clears throat> Three lessons you get from Barnabas. One is this. Everyone needs encouragement. Everybody. And in fact, the, probably the, the, the building block in discipleship is encouragement. It's, you can do this, buddy. It's, it's seeing what God's doing in another person's life and encouraging them in that, right? You got this. Oh, yeah. You, you, it, building them up. Building them up. Encouraging them. Second thing we know is everybody needs a second chance. Everybody. Maybe even a third and a fourth and a fifth chance, right? And when you're making disciples, you've got to just count on the fact that it's going to take multiple chances. You've got to give them. And frankly, I need them. So giving a second chance is just giving away what I've been given. Is it not? Haven't we all received second, third, fourth, multiple chances, right? So that's key. Barnabas gave second chances. And then third, everyone needs one, needs to be one, and needs to make one. You see this pattern, and I just threw this, I found this picture on the internet, and I thought it illustrated it kind of nicely and simply. Everybody needs a Barnabas, someone who's mentoring us. And then we need a Timothy, someone whom we're mentoring. And we also need a Silas, somebody just to come alongside of us, a co-worker, a, a comrade, right? We need all those relationships in order to really be healthy, in order to really, be, in order to really grow in our, our faith. I need to have 
Somebody like Barnabas in my life who's speaking into my life and encouraging me. And then I need to have someone like Timothy in whom I'm investing. And then I need comrades to just give support, guys I can lock arms with and work together with. And when I've got all of those relationship lines in place, it's a setup for transformation, it's a setup for growth, it's a setup for success in the kingdom. Um, I envision the day that everybody who is part of New River Church has a Barnabas and a Timothy. That's my goal for each one of you. Um, I'm convinced it's, it's what we need. Um, in our life groups, we need to be raising up leaders who probably will leave our group to start another group. That's okay. That's something that's successful. You did it right, life group. When you raise up someone who leaves your life group to start another group, A plus, you did it. Um, as individuals, we need to be thinking about investing others, replacing ourselves, hoping that they do bigger and better things than we did. Whether you're a, a, a grow zone teacher or, or whether you're in hospitality or worship team or sound or elders or deacons or women's or men's ministry or youth ministry, it doesn't matter what the ministry is, always be thinking replacement my replacement who am i replace who is replacing me who am i training up to be my replacement and you pray and you hope that they do a far better job than you did that's the ultimate compliment when they replace me and they go further than i could have done when my life becomes a stepping stone for you Go further than I could have gone. And if we can be stepping stones for one another, friends, then we can avoid. We can, let, let's learn from history, right? Remember Moses, Joshua, nobody, 400 years. David, Solomon, nobody, 400 years. Do I need to repeat this? Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, nobody, 400 years. You follow that? We can avoid that pattern. We can avoid that by being stepping stones for others. Just uh, let's pray. Let's pray together. Lord, um, yeah, you know, Jesus, one of the things that I find amazing about you, Jesus, is you're God and you're walking on this planet, Jesus, and like, you got all this power and all this teaching and all this cool stuff. And, and yet you said to your disciples uh, that you'll do even greater things than I did. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, that's your heart, Jesus. Your heart is to, you, you yourself were a stepping stone. You were a stepping stone for your disciples. And so, Lord, um, I, I want to be like that. I want to be a stepping stone for others, Jesus, that they would be able to do and to be greater than I myself, that, Lord, your kingdom would continue to advance in this world and around this world. God, I do want to thank you for the men and women who have invested in me over the years. I owe a great debt to every one of them. 
We're so grateful for them, Lord. I honor them this morning. So, Lord, uh, we're yours. And I just want to say, Father, your will be done in our lives. In your name, Jesus, we pray.